If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Good morrow, dragons and lions, wolves and roses, sand snakes, eunuchs, and bloodlusting krakens. Welcome to another still smug book talk. As always, it's your treacherous rogue, Sir Duncan the Fearsome. Today we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 2, Stormborn. From a book reader's perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries that book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead. So if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to crank the dial. That being said, ballsy show watchers who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along with and maybe gain some cool insight or context to the show from the book information. Spoilers in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Clocking in at 59 minutes, Stormborn was very enjoyable from beginning to end. To me, it felt sort of symmetrical to the premiere episode. Dragonstone started with a scene where a bunch of people were ruthlessly killed, and ended in a calm. Stormborn began in a calm, albeit amidst a storm, and ended with a scene of people being ruthlessly killed, in a different kind of storm. As we will recall, Euron Greyjoy referred to himself as the Storm when he threw his brother Balon over the rope bridge at Pike. That itself was a book nod to when Euron said to Roderick Harlaw, I am the Storm, my lord, the first Storm and the last. Speaking of Euron, our first book crossover involves the Storm himself, as we see his ship Silence doing what it does best. In an inside Game of Thrones featurette called Battling the Silence, show co-creator D.B. Weiss says, The boat itself is a projection of the personality of the man who built it. It's a big fuck you boat built by a big fuck you guy. The show version of the ship, Silence, is built as a trireme, which includes a ram at the base of the, of the bow. It's an old uh, Greek or Phoenician design. And uh, with this design, they included what's called a corvus, which was the boarding walkway with the spikes on the underside that Euron slammed down onto the deck of Yara's ship with. That itself is a neat little indirect book reference, because Corvus is Latin, meaning crow, and in the books, Euron is called the crow's eye. Silence, if you remember, derives its name from Euron's practice of cutting out the tongues of his crewmen and prisoners. A wiki of Ice and Fire summarized the description of Silence from various book quotes. The silence is red, lean, and fearsome. It has a single mast, black sails, and a dark red hull. Its decks are painted red to better hide the blood that soaked them. On the prow is a mouthless maiden of black iron with long legs, slender waist, high breasts, and mother-of-pearl eyes. The silence is crewed by mutes and mongrels from throughout the known world. 
Since Euron's banishment from Pike by Balon after the Greyjoy Rebellion, the silence has sailed, pillaged, and raped all over the known world. Euron boasts to have traveled to Ashai and even sailed the smoking sea and walked the smoking ruins of Valyria. Here's a couple cool quotes about silence. Even at anchor, silence looked both cruel and fast. A Feast for Crows, Chapter 18, The Iron Captain The silence was amongst the ships they passed. Victarion's gaze was drawn to the iron figurehead at her prow, the mouthless maiden with the wind-blown hair and outstretched arm. Her mother-of-pearl eyes seemed to follow him. She had a mouth like any other woman, till the crow's eye sewed it shut. A Feast for Crows, Chapter 29, The Reaver and there's one little book difference we didn't cover from last week, but when Jamie asks Euron, wasn't it you that sailed to Lannisport and burned the Lannister fleet? He admits that yes, it was him. But in the books, Euron only came up with the plan, and it was Victarion, his brother, who led the fleet to burn the Lannister ships. Changing this little detail just further confirms that Victarion will not be a character on Game of Thrones, the TV show. Our next crossover is the Balerian Ballista, this little scene makes me think of two specific dragons, the first of which is Balerion. Called the Black Dread, he was one of the three great dragons of Aegon I Targaryen and his sisters. These three dragons, Balerion, Meraxes, and Vagar, were used to conquer much of Westeros during the War of Conquest. Balerion ended up dying of old age in 94 AC during the reign of King Jaehaerys I Targaryen, also known as the Conciliator, at around 200 years old. As a side note, Jaehaerys rode a dragon named Vermithor, who was the next largest Targaryen dragon at the time, behind Balerion and Vagar. But Balerion was the largest of all the Targaryen dragons. His fire was as black as his scales, his wingspan so vast that entire towns would be swallowed up in his shadows when he passed overhead. His teeth were as long as swords, and his jaws were large enough to swallow an aurochs whole or even one of the hairy mammoths that are said to roam the cold wastes beyond the port of Ibn. Balerion, Meraxes, and Vagar were all named for Valyrian gods. After taking King's Landing, Aegon then crossed the Blackwater to meet King Heron Hor at Harrenhal. King Heron the Black, as he was known, took refuge in the formidable fortress of Harrenhal. Aegon gave him till sunset to surrender, yet he did not yield. So, Aegon took Balerion high up into the sky and descended inside the castle walls and put the entire castle to flame. Balerion's flames burned so hot that the towers of Harrenhal went up like candles, melting and twisting into the shapes they retain to this day. King Heron and his sons all perished, ending the line of House Hor. They were roasted inside the walls, and the interesting thing about this was that Harrenhal was the largest castle in Westeros, built to monstrous proportions it would have been invincible in a ground fight, but they did not expect dragons to show up and take it from, the, from, the, from above with fire. After the death of Aegon I, Balerion lived on. He was next ridden by Aegon's son, Prince Magor, later known as Magor the Cruel. Magor rode Balerion north to the Vale and put down Jonas Aaron's rebellion. Aaron had imprisoned his own brother, Lord Ronald Aaron, and declared himself independent of the Iron Throne. Eventually, Magor was exiled and took Balerion to Pentos. However, when King Aenys I, his older brother, died, Magor rode Balerion back to King's Landing to take the Iron Throne for himself and to basically step in front of Aenys' son. So when Aenys I's son, Aegon, rose to take the throne from Magor, 
Magor used Balerion to kill Aegon and his dragon Quicksilver in the battle that became known as the Battle Beneath the God's Eye. Balerion's next rider was Viserys I. Viserys was Balerion's rider at the time of Balerion's death in 94 AC. The second, not so obviously referenced dragon in this scene was Meraxes, who was one of the three great dragons responsible for the conquest. Meraxes was ridden by Aegon's sister Rhaenys. Her egg hatched on Dragonstone during the Century of Blood. During the battle that became known as the Field of Fire, Meraxes, Balerion, and Vagar took to the sky all at the same time for the only time in history. Between the three, they killed 4,000 men, burning them alive. King Murren was killed, House Gardener dying with him. The army was broken, and Aegon I was victorious. Meraxes was the second largest dragon of the Targaryens, being larger than Vagar, but smaller than Balerion. Meraxes could allegedly swallow horses whole, and had golden eyes and silver scales. Meraxes and Rhaenys Targaryen both met their end in the First Dornish War at Hellholt after an iron bolt from a scorpion went through Meraxes' eye, just like in this episode when Cersei shoots the bolt through Balerion's eye. After Meraxes was killed, her skull was later returned to Aegon by peace delegation. Along with 18 other Targaryen dragon skulls, Meraxes' skull used to hang on the wall in the Red Keep's throne room. After Robert's rebellion, King Robert had Meraxes' skull removed and stored in a dank cellar along with the others, which is where we were in this episode. So we do know of at least one dragon that was killed in the exact manner depicted in this episode, with an iron bolt going through its eye and puncturing its skull, and that was Meraxes. Although there are other reported deaths of dragons due to bolts like this as well. At the Battle of the Gullet, Vermax and Stormcloud were also both allegedly killed by bolts from ballistas and scorpions. So this could be a serious threat as we move ahead for Danny's dragons. One other interesting side note is that in the books, the dragon bones and skulls are described as being black, whereas on the TV show, they're depicted as being white. The next little book crossover that we have is the shrinking size of dragons. As we moved through this dank cellar and saw these different dragon skulls, it was apparent that Balerion was very large and there were many other smaller ones. So the reason that these dragons got ended up being smaller and smaller as the Targaryens reigned over the Seven Kingdoms was because that they stopped letting them live free, basically. They kept them locked up in this place called the Dragon Pit. The Targaryens would keep their dragons within the building. Thirty knights could ride abreast into its entrance, the door was so huge. No pit dragon ever reached the size of the dragons who were raised before the construction of the building. When living dragons still nested beneath the dome, light would shine through the windows at night. The dragon pit's huge dome has collapsed at this point, which was actually referenced in the last episode when the Lannister soldier was talking about the things that he wanted to see when he got to King's Landing. And he mentioned that the sept had been blown up, the dragon pit was destroyed, or had collapsed, etc. The bronze, or maybe iron doors, have been sealed at the dragon pit at this point for more than a century, and it's just a ruin, blackened by fire. Prior to the dragon pit, a great sept was built on Rainey's Hill, known as the Sept of Remembrance, which used to be the main sept in King's Landing, before Baylor's sept was built. During the Faith Militant Uprising, Magor the Cruel, mounted on Blarian the Black Dread, 
incinerated the great sept with dragon flame, and later decreed that a large domed structure would be built on top of the hill for the Targaryens to house their royal dragons. Because Magor had killed all those who had built the Red Keep to hide its secrets, many fled rather than work on the dragon pit. Magor had to use city prisoners with supervisors from Myr and Volantis. King Aegon II's coronation took place in the dragon pit, and later, during the Targaryen civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons, after King's Landing was captured by Queen Rhaenyra, the dragon pit was destroyed during the storming of the dragon pit. When ten tens of thousands of crazed and starving small folk, led by the deranged shepherd, stormed the dragon pit to kill the dragons within, five Targaryen dragons, Shrykos, Morgul, Tyraxes, Dreamfire, and Cyrax, and thousands of small folk were all killed. The dragon pit was reduced to flaming ruins. By the end of the reign of King Viserys I Targaryen, who was Balerion's last rider before Balerion died, only 20 dragons were alive. The majority of these died during the civil war called the Dance of the Dragons, which began in 129 AC and would last until mid-131 AC. Archmaester Marwyn, however, holds that the Order of the Maesters, with their secret goal to suppress magic, was responsible for the extinction of dragons. By the end of the dance, in 131 AC, only four dragons remained alive. Sheepstealer, the Cannibal, and Silverwing, who had been born years before the war, and the dragon Morning, which had hatched during the war. There were still many dragon eggs left after the war, and at least one of those hatched. The last dragon was a stunted, sick, and misshapen thing, and she died young in 153 AC during the reign of King Aegon III Targaryen, the Dragon Bane. She had been a green female, small with withered wings. She laid a clutch of five eggs, which never hatched. The Targaryen collection consisted of 19 dragon skulls of various sizes and ages. They were displayed on the walls of the throne room in the Iron King, some of these skulls were allegedly thousands of years old, which is interesting because they would have had to brought them from old Valyria to Dragonstone, then set them up in the Red Keep after the conquest. Our next parallel is Jon Snow going to Dragonstone, which mirrors Ned going south to King's Landing for King Robert, and Ned's father Rickard Stark going south to King's Landing for King Aerys. Neither of the two came back alive. But it was interesting because Sansa had said, don't you remember what happened to our grandfather? Bringing up Rickard Stark. And it's a pretty interesting story. They never went into to great detail with it on the TV show, I don't believe, but I'll tell you about it now. Rickard had negotiated the betrothals of both Brandon, his son, to Catelyn Tully, and Lyanna, his daughter, to Robert Baratheon. However, before any of the marriages could take place, Lyanna disappeared near Harrenhal. Her brother Brandon held Prince Rhaegar Targaryen responsible. Rhaegar was Aerys' eldest son and heir to the Iron Throne. Brandon ended up riding south to King's Landing to try to fix the situation. He basically showed up down there with a small group of people and decided to challenge uh, Rhaegar to try to retrieve Lyanna. But... Rhaegar was not around, and Ares just had them all imprisoned on charges of conspiring to kill the crown prince. He summoned their fathers to answer for their crimes of their sons, and slaughtered them all, with the exception of Ethan Glover. Lord Rickard Stark had demanded a trial by combat, 
expecting to fight a Kingsguard. Ares granted Rickard's request, but to the Mad King, House Targaryen's champion was fire. Protected by Sir Gerald Hightower and Sir Jaime Lannister of the Kingsguard, Ares had Rickard Stark suspended in the throne room of the Red Keep. Rossart and another pyromancer lit a fire beneath Rickard while he was dressed in his steel armor. Brandon, with a Tyrashi noose around his neck and a sword just out of his reach, was made to watch his father roast alive inside his armor. Trying to reach the sword to save his dying father, Brandon also strangled himself to death. Rickard Stark was succeeded by Eddard Stark, and shortly after this event, the Roberts Rebellion kicked off and the Starks and the Baratheons ended up taking down the Targaryen Empire. So this is a story that book readers are very familiar with, but show watchers might not know as much about, and it was cool to hear it mentioned by Sansa and the TV show. Our next little crossover, which is a little bit different on the TV show than the books, is Varys' motivation. They have this conversation, Danny and Varys, this episode about who Varys is loyal to, and Danny had asked him why he would have wanted to support Viserys, her brother, because he's crazy and cowardly and stupid. And he, you know, he didn't really give an answer for that. That there's no good answer for that. And uh, his motivation to have tried to support the Targaryens' rise at this point in time is sort of unexplained on the TV show. But in the books, it, it actually makes sense because he never wanted the Targaryens, Viserys, and, and Daenerys to come to power. He wanted to bring attention to their name and then have his man, Aegon, who's Aegon, who's uh, supposedly Rhaegar's long-lost long son, who's you know was supposed to be killed during Robert's Rebellion by the Mountain. He uh, he's supposedly alive in the books and appears as this character Aegon who is planning to to meet up with the dragon queen and co-rule so in the in the books Varys has a reason to be elevating or supporting the Targaryens because he has his own man on the inside the interesting thing about the books is that this guy Aegon Targaryen supposedly Rhaegar's son probably isn't a Targaryen at all but a Blackfire the Blackfire family resulted as the 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 great bastards were were created by Aegon the Unworthy, I believe it was, and he gave his sword, which was the original sword of the conquest wielded by Aegon the First Blackfire. He gave it to his bastard son, and before he died, he legitimized all his bastards. And Aegon, or sorry, Damon Blackfire, his bastard son who he gave the sword to, rose in rebellion against the crown, against his legitimate brother, uh, Daron, I believe it was. So those subsequent, the series of rebellions um, were, were all perpetrated by Blackfire descendants, and they were called the Blackfire Rebellions. So the, there's a theory that varies who has been working with Illyrio Mopatis, the guy who sheltered Viserys and Daenerys, they have this guy Aegon who may actually be a Blackfire, and they may be trying to elevate him to the throne in just the latest iteration of a Blackfire Rebellion, which is a pretty awesome theory, and it's going to be cool to see how that plays out in the books. But it's just kind of funny that they're trying to clarify Varys' motivation on the TV show, because without Aegon, his 
secret Blackfire, you know, fake Targaryen. There's there really isn't any motivation for Varys to have wanted to support Viserys during that time period. So it's just it's kind of funny that they even brought it up. I guess people had been wondering, but they didn't really do a very good job of clarifying anything. Ooh, and just one more note about the the dank cellar with the dragon skulls. Cersei had mentioned Robert bringing whores down to the dungeon or to that to that room to see the skulls. And uh, there's no book references to that, but it may have been a, a subtle reference to Tyrion bringing his whore Shay down to see the dragon skulls in the books. So that was kind of a cool little hidden detail as well. Our next crossover is a previous event in Westeros history that sort of mirrors the way Cersei took power of King's Landing. She married into the royal family, and then when her husband died, the crown went to her, her sons who were, weren't actually Robert's sons, but nobody knows that. And then after her sons died, the crown has now been given to Cersei. So that's pretty interesting that a female from outside the royal family originally is sitting on the, the, the throne right now. There's a similar event, not on a, a kingship level, but on a lordship level that took place when Barbary Dustin ended up inheriting the uh, the the Dustin castle when her husband William Dustin rode off to war in Robert's rebellion Barbary had gifted him with a fine red steed the pride of her father's herd Lord Willem swore he would return to her mounted on the horse after the war Lord Eddard Stark returned the steed to Barbary but not her lord husband who died at the Tower of Joy that's you know obviously an important event so this guy must have been significant if Ed took him to the, or if Ned took him to the Tower of Joy. She bears an intense grudge against Eddard for not bringing her husband's bones back with him so she could bury him at their ancestral home. But she basically married into this family. She was originally a Risewell, Barbary Risewell. And after her husband died and there were no heirs, she ended up becoming Lord in the Dustin house, which is pretty, pretty interesting and shows that it is possible for a woman to marry into a family and end up being the lady of the house, or the queen of the Seven Kingdoms in this case. And our last crossover is the gender neutrality of the noun in ancient Valyrian used to describe the prince that was promised, or more accurately, the prince or princess that was promised. In Bravos, Samuel Tarley tells Aemon of the rumors about Daenerys and her dragons. The maester becomes convinced that Daenerys is the prophesied leader. Remembering Septon Barth's conclusion that the dragons are neither male or female, and that the uh, this word in Valerian means dragons in place of prince, Aemon determines that there is an error in the prophecy's translation and tells Sam that the hero is not a prince, but possibly a princess, and he believes Daenerys. So people have been wondering if other prophecies that are in High Valerian may be gender neutral as well, like the Valonqar prophecy, which was one of Maggie the Frog's little predictions that she had made for Cersei. The Valonqar would show up and choke the life out of her, and it's been translated as little brother. But according to David Peterson, who created the High Valyrian language, Valonqar is a gendered noun, and it is male-gendered. So there is no question that the Valonqar should indeed be a little brother and not a little sister. All right. That's all for today's Still Smug Book Talk, covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 2, Stormborn. 
I hope you all have a great weekend and enjoy the upcoming episode of Game of Thrones this Sunday with the Queen's Justice. Sir Duncan signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Morghulis. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.